Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the second day of the blessed month of December, which means the month will, or the year even, will soon be over. Blessedly soon. Michael, how have you been? Hi, it's release from lockdown. It's mean and no look. I mean, how can you not be delighted? Although, and this is not to do with any particular, Gary, we were released from lockdown on the 1st of December. And then, innocently, I went trolling along for a cup of coffee in a coffee shop to discover that, no, coffee shops can't open till the 4th of December. And when I asked a few people who are supposed to know these things, I was told, uh, well, there's a very good reason for that, but we just but we just don't know what it is. We think it's something to do with letting them get ready. They've been ready since the last... I mean, at times it feels like they're just... They just do these little details. It's like a, a, a decorative twirl on a piece of furniture. It doesn't actually serve any function, but it it makes them feel better about the process. I don't know why we could open barbers today. I went and I now look less like care in the community, thankfully. But you can't open a coffee shop. I, I don't know if I would say you look like care in the community. The listeners haven't been able to see it, but Michael has been going through what I would only describe as a sort of deep Russian author period. <laughs> yeah. Sort of hair everywhere, wild hair. I thought it was I thought more of kind of John the Baptist kind of thing myself, even if not quite the age. Biblical prophet feel to it. I've got good news for you, Michael, anyway, to start off with. We want to want to go through a couple of things. Like the there was a great or there's a landmark case involving the Tavistock Clinic, which is a, a gender reassignment clinic effectively for children in England. There were want to go through some tweets by a Sinn Fein T D. But less about the tweets themselves actually and more about the politics of dealing with that aspect of Sinn Fein and those tweets and whether or not the way people approach it is actually in any way politically beneficial. But before we get on to that, good news. So Michael, we've talked before about how in a democracy people get what they deserve and that the real problems with democracies are that people just don't care about things. And so stuff just happens because no one cares about it at all. True. But now something has happened, Michael. There is a chance for people to defend fundamental democratic values and stand up to the Chinese government. And all that is asked of you, Michael, is that you stay in your house and get drunk. Oh, I... I'm engaged, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, I'm listening, I'm well disposed. So China and Australia have been having what is rapidly becoming some sort of economic war the last while, where Australia says things like, maybe we should investigate the start of COVID-19 to see exactly how it happened and how it spread and why the early warning systems didn't catch it. And China responds by going, God, you say that like a man who just loved to be slapped with some tariffs. <laughs> yeah, and a fairly hefty tariff too. So China have now, um, a couple of days ago, they slapped tariffs on Australian wine. Now, tariffs of, you're talking up to 200%, 212%, I think was the highest that could be uh, that could be gotten on that. So what's happened, Michael, is because China has also sent out things, they put out a list of the things they didn't like Australia doing, and the the gist of the list was anything that would interfere with China doing whatever the fuck it wanted. Right. Uh, things like, please stop bringing up human rights abuses that we may or may not have done. Or things like the rule of law. Just mind your own fucking business was the basic gist of it. Yes. And the, the consensus was that this was less of a message to Australia and more of a message to other countries that might think about making a comment. So Australia is, is is being used as an example by the Chinese to try and dissuade people 
from basically putting any check on Chinese ambitions or actions that they do that are illegal or you know, arguably genocide. But in response to that, a global campaign has now started, and basically it's to support Australia by drinking Australian wine. Ah, yes, yes, yes. This is I see. I, this has been over Twitter. I, I'm, 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 I'm endorsing this campaign. I mean, the Australians are, are calling on people to drink a couple of bottles of Australian wine. Um, it's actually been quite interesting to see because you've got there's a thing called the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, IPAC, and it's a group of parliamentarians from about I think it's about twenty different countries. Uh, it's a it's a cross party group of legislators, and they uh, they are behind this. So it's basically just a load of MEPs and TDs from various countries getting tanked. <laughs> okay. So there you go, Michael. People don't stand up for democratic values, but we're literally just saying go get tanked on cheap wine. That's all you need to do. Well, we're Australian wine. You can even get reasonably priced. I saw this a couple of days ago, and actually, Gary, I went out, I went online, and I bought half a dozen bottles for Christmas. Now, I'm not a man with deep pockets. I went for the Penfolds Grange, but I went for the 2009, which is a good vintage, but not one of the great vintages. So half a dozen bottles I got for 4170 So, you know, I mean, it's... Less than a thousand a bottle. Now, if anybody out there, you know, feels like splashing out, I'd recommend maybe go for the 2004, if you can. That would, It's ready for drinking. It would be lovely for Christmas. I, I do understand there are, there are actually more, more economic bottles available than this. But, you know, it's Christmas. Why not treat yourself to something nice? And support the Australian economy and stand up for human rights. There's a quite humorous undertone to this story. But it's very clear that China is targeting the Australian wine sector. And it's basically just said, we will destroy that sector in particular as a demonstration of what we can do if you keep pissing us off. Yeah. It is meant to be a lesson, not just to Australia, but to other countries, that if you, you, know, if you start talking about things like democratic norms or maybe you shouldn't be allowed to commit genocide, China will make sure you suffer from it. Because they're willing and they've shown that they can do it. There is a lesson in here somewhere. I don't know really what it is. It's some kind of a parable. Australia made the decision, which is a perfectly reasonable one, that it had to shift its 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 worldview, its perspective economically and politically away from, say, from Europe or from the Anglophone world and, and see itself as being part of the Pacific Rim and, and engage in South and East Asia. And it did so. It also, of course, is very, very wealth, wealthy in lots of minerals, and including rare earth minerals, the kind of things the Chinese need in large quantities. And that meant that back at the time of the, the great financial crash, the Australian economy effectively avoided going into recession because of the amount of trade it was doing with China hmm. and the robustness of the Chinese economy at the time. It, it I suppose... It's just a, the general lesson is that you you can't you can't into any one basket put too many eggs. Um, and if you're dealing with you're when you're when you're sitting on the back of a tiger, it's always a tricky kind of experience. Yeah, I mean Australia and China used to have quite good relationships. Oh, very tight. They were tight. Yeah, no, they were. Uh, there were many complaints about how close the relationship had in fact gotten, but the last couple of years, and particularly the last year. Uh, with COVID-19 and some of the Chinese governments and Chinese companies' actions in Australia have, I think, pretty irrevocably uh, damaged that relationship. And now they seem to be 
nearly heading up attempts to push back against China. Which, considering China wants to remake you know, international norms in its own brutal totalitarian image, might be a good thing. Right. I wonder if this will, and not that I imagine this is your primary concern in their stories, I wonder will this mean that if they're moving away from high-end Australian wine, will that mean that high-end European wine and otherwise is going to start going up in price? I don't know if they still do it, but what's the name of a thing which has, it, it derives its value from its social status? Is it, is it a positional good? Is that it? I think that's it. it, it yeah, I think it's... A, it's something that you you, you, you you has a high price because other people see you have it and it gives you status as a result. Back, oh, and, and maybe it's different now, but I know 20 years ago, a mate of mine who was in, in the wine trade and they were dealing a lot with China with French wine, high, high-end French wine. Well, he said, at the poor chap, he was traumatized by the experience. He was, he, he'd be at rest, restaurants in, in Shanghai with these, mil, well, not millionaires, billionaires probably, and they would be ordering bottles of the most expensive extravagantly wonderful French wines, Romany Contis from Burgundy, Chateau Margaux, Lafitte Rothschilds, whatever, Chateau Akems. And I recently, the Romany Contis, which is, is regarded like as maybe something with the world's greatest wine, greatest red wine. And they would mix it with Coca-Cola because they didn't really like the taste. And I think Chinese wine is maybe sweeter. I I'm not a, not a big, don't have a lot of knowledge about the right Chinese. But this, this was, oh God, it broke his heart. But these were thousands of bottles, thousands of quid a bottle. But they obviously weren't drinking it because they liked it. It was because people would see them spending thousands of pounds on a bottle of wine. Uh, so I want, if that's going to be the case, some there may be some little some farmers who own half an acre in, of somewhere in France that are about to get rich as the Chinese decide to switch their tastes over. I mean, China has a has a great taste for for Veblen goods, for for luxury goods, for conspicuous consumption, effectively. Well, that's what happens when you have a country full of the nouveau riche, Michael. Well, as somebody once commented, it's the riche part that's important, Gary, not the nouveau. Very much so, Michael. Also, for people who complain that the nouveau riche have no taste, I would invite you to look at some of the art styles that the Rothschild family created over their tenure. Some were not high moments in the, shall we say, minimalistic class. Well, it's a long time since the Rothschilds were nouveau riche. But even when they were just riche, their uh, their internal architecture was not uh, <laughs> not great. And very riche indeed. Yes, indeed. Anyway, it is a, it's a very worthwhile project and everybody should go out. And, and, you know, I'd say, don't say, I'll get this bottle instead of. Get them as well as, you know. It's important to also support small Irish producers. Of wine? Wine. And wine-like goods. There's a guy in Lusk, I believe, who is making wine. Um, available on Google, I'm sure. I don't know if he's got a massive production, but... I think there is actually one person somewhere in North County Dublin actually producing wine. Or you could just go and buy like a, a red breast and have like an actual nice time. If, yes, indeed. Or a, or a nice bottle of Irish Dingle Gin. That is my, my recommendation. If you're looking for a, a good whiskey for the Christmas, get a red breast 12 year. Very good. And um, would you mix that now with anything, Gary, or just a drop of water or what? Uh, traditionally, no, but I, I will occasionally mix it with Coke if I'm drinking with people who really love whiskey. But that's more just to enjoy <laughs> the pain. <laughs> you know, could you not just help out the poor fellows and have Jack Daniels? Michael, there is there is a great joy to give someone 
like a, a red breast and you know you sit down to share it and it's a lovely moment and then you just crack open the can of coke look them in the eye and just slowly pour it in <laughs> well you know what we shouldn't be too precious about these things when i was a, a wee child growing up every pub in ireland on its counter would have had a bottle of red lemonade and a bottle of white lemonade because the absolute standard thing that people put in their paddy or their jemison or their powers was a drop of lemonade so coke and lemonade ultimately what's the difference whiskey and red lemonade is actually quite nice together Perfectly fine. I, Gary, at this stage, I drink so little. If I, if you, if I manage to get out in the company of human beings and I'm, and there's drink going on, I'm not awfully fussy. As long as it doesn't taste a coconut, I'll drink it. But anyway, if you do end up doing that and mixing good whiskies with cola in front of people who are horrified by it, the important point is to maintain eye contact in order to display dominance. But everything else is, is changeable never show shame no never never explain and never apologize as michael once told me the true aristocrat is beyond the reach of social convention <laughs> yes convention is only for the bourgeois which sounds like something julius avola could have written well yeah i can't say that's not true but i'm sure there are other people who could have written it as well anyway enough of julius avola let's move along so the tavistock clinic in uh, england there was a landmark case that was brought down um, today. Now this is of interest to Ireland because we send people over to the Tavistock Clinic as well for treatment. So what the Tavistock Clinic actually is, is, is what's called a uh, Gender Identity Development Service. This is the only one in all of Britain that actually deals with children. Up to 2011 they were only dealing with those who were 16 and older, but since then they have been dealing with children. The policy is as young as 12, but we know in the last year they've treated children as young as 10. And what they would do is they would get uh, children who claim to uh, want to change sex or to be experiencing gender dysphoria, and they would put them on puberty blockers and then uh, eventually uh, sex change hormones or, or cross-sex hormones, depending on which, which way of referring to you prefer. So the case was brought by a woman called Kira Bell. And Kira Bell, when she was... 16 went on to puberty blockers in the Tavistock clinic at 17 she was on testosterone and by 20 she'd have a uh, a double mastectomy which is the removal of both breasts miss bell then she says at that point she was accepted by society as a man and appeared to be a man but the more she dealt with men the more she noted that there were simply differences between her and men that um she couldn't deal with that regardless of society accepting her there were still differences there and they couldn't be dealt with through surgical or therapeutic intervention. She said that she began to feel that she was just a woman with a beard because that's what she was. So she brought a case against the Tavistock and her case and the case revolved around the idea of consent. Can a child meaningfully consent to puberty blockers? Can a child meaningfully consent to change their sex? And the courts came back and the phrasing of the court is that it is highly doubtful that anyone under 16 can do this. Now, that is a very staid presentation of a judgment which will effectively end the provision of these things to people under 16 in Britain. The NHS has already amended its guidelines on providing children with puberty blockers and said that it is only to happen in cases where courts have said that it is in a child's best interest. So, effectively, mm-hmm. 
This means that unless Tavistock wants to bring every person who comes forward through the court system, they're not prescribing any of these things anymore. Now, they're going to appeal. They will absolutely appeal because this effectively ends a lot of their reason uh, for existing. But what I thought was particularly interesting about the um, about the judgment, Michael, the debate about puberty blockers and if they're reversible or irreversible and what the evidence base is, has been an ongoing one. And activists have been saying one thing and everyone else has been kind of been going, but do you have any proof of that? And we now know, because the court went through presentations from numerous organizations on both sides of this, what the state of the evidence in this treatment is. And the court is um, not terribly positive towards it, I would say, Michael. Yeah, well, no, definitely not. The treatment is experimental in nature. It points out that there is no evidence for the efficiency of the treatment in young children to treat gender dysphoria. Um, It points out that Tavistock couldn't even give it a clear answer to the question, what is this treatment meant to do? So at certain points, Tavistock were saying that, well, you give puberty blockers to children to give them time. And in other points, they were saying, well, you give puberty blockers to children in order to stop the continual development of a body when the child experiences dysphoria. And the court rightly pointed out, those are two different things. And which is it? Yeah. And Tavistock couldn't actually give them the answer. It said that puberty blockers may be irreversible, that they have the potential to change someone in the most fundamental way possible, I believe is the phrase. But the court also looked at, Tavistock was saying you have puberty blockers and you have sex change hormones, and those are two different medical interventions, and they don't relate to each other. Yes, well, not, there's, no necessar- there's no necessary connection between the two. But what the court said is, okay, how many children who go on puberty blockers will then go on to start taking a sex change hormones? And they asked Tavistock, and Tavistock couldn't tell them. Well, it's, it's interesting. I was listening to an interview recently with a Canadian um, uh, endocrinologist, and he was discussing issues around this and the 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 approach of affirmative therapy and puberty blockers. And he said the the original idea around puberty blockers was that by by giving children puberty blockers, you gave them an opportunity to take a breathing space where they could could they could be put in a position to understand or to reflect on what they felt their gender identity was before puberty started. And by doing so, therefore, you could then deal with the issues around puberty and how 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 what kind of pubescence they would they would go through. But he said that if you looked at the studies done both in the United States and in Canada historically regarding. Uh, children and teenagers who presented with what was called gender dysphoria, you know, a dissatisfaction with the gender identity that of their biological sex, and they wish to, to they wish to change their gender identity to that of the opposite sex. They said that all of the studies that had been done. Now we're not talking about massive, massive studies here because we're not talking a very large population, but the studies had suggested that the figures between seventy and up to ninety percent of those young people by the time they reached their early 20s would have actually have a have their their gender dysphoric issues would have resolved and in the great majority of cases they would have reconciled to their to their their gender to their biological sex and saw themselves as being either gay men or gay women he said however 
if you look, there was a study done, I think he said Sweden, but maybe wrong. I think it was, anyway, there was a study done, and it involved 70, 70 children who had gone into, through gender affirmative therapy and had taken the puberty blockers. And you know, in the in the case of the study, all of the children who had taken the puberty blockers then went on to take the, hor the, the cross hormones, which was a very different outcome than the one you would have predicted on the basis of how it would otherwise have evolved without the intervention of the puberty blockers. He also just generally, and we won't get into this now because it's a technical area, and I'd say I, I recommend anybody who's interested, they can look at the, the conversation. It was Benjamin Boyce, who we actually interviewed here on, you may remember Gary, a Canadian uh, YouTuber. He hasn't, if you look him up, Benjamin Boyce talking to this um to this endocrinologist who has an irish name i can't remember what it was it's an interesting because he, he deals with the issues around puberty about uh, and the endocrinological hormonal issues there which he says are, are not being dealt with are not being recognized that whatever the whatever one's position on how you properly manage this process but the actual the medic the medicine involved is like is more is quite complicated so anyway as regards that this Tavistock, but as but as was said, you would expect that the Tavistock would simply would have that kind of data to hand. It, it would seem to me to be fairly basic. The the phrase you run into a lot in this um, in this judgment is the court finds it surprising that the Tavistock clinic did not possess this information because there were a number of things that the court asked for, which when you read, go yeah, that's absolutely something you should have a hand, and the clinic just goes. We don't have that on hand. I think you might translate that as the court is saying, "Are you, are you fucking serious?" Yeah, there is a, you, a certain undertone you, to it. You don't have what? Like when the court asked the Tavistock Clinic, "Okay, in two thousand eleven, you started providing these things to children as young as twelve and occasionally younger. What was the age distribution of people who have received puberty blockers since then?" And the Tavistock Clinic said, "We we haven't collated that information." And you're sort of going, what? In the course of your, your general day-to-day, -day, you don't have that information. And also, knowing you were going to go to court and have to discuss this, you didn't then collate the information. I mean, how hard would that be to do? You put in a spreadsheet. But I think stuff like that really did weigh against the Tavistock Clinic, because you're going, no, this is perfectly safe. No, you know, we've got all these safeguards in place. And yet every time you're asked for information, you have to go, well, we don't actually collect that. And I... I the court doesn't say anything negative about it. It just says it's surprising. It says a number of things are surprising. Mm. But the tone of it, the sort of undercurrent of it, is a sort of, like, are you taking the piss here? You're using experimental medicine on children, and you're not collecting information on it. I think, Gary, that's the key point to this judgment. In, and I think that's what people look at it, is the court is coming to this without... It would seem, from the way they talk about it, anyway, without any prejudgment on, shall we say, the metaphysical questions of what transgenderism is, the nature of gender, all that kind of stuff, which is a very hot topic in the social media. It sees its job as to assess the safety of the procedures and the nature of the procedures the the evidence based the outcomes the reasons the aims whatever just they're looking at a medical procedure and coming to conclusions about the the, the correct practices involved and whether or not correct best practices being followed 
and there has been far too little of that kind of if you maybe dispassionate approach to simply the medical side of it the scientific medical side of it uh, surely gary one of the most damning i would say things about this is the references they make to the evidence uh, their assessment of the evidence given to them presented to the court regarding the use and the efficacy it's interesting in the judgment in that the court says that it's not there to determine whether these things work or not. What it's there to determine is if a child can consent to it. Now that will touch on whether or not the treatments work and what the evidence base is, because if the evidence base is disputed, it's much harder to consent to it. But they're not trying to say this works and this doesn't work. But just on the on the puberty blockers leading to sex change hormones, one of the expert witnesses that they called said that if an adolescent starts puberty suppression, they start taking puberty blockers, roughly 98% of them will continue uh, the treatment and use sex change hormones. Yeah. So the court basically said that we are not going to consider these as separate medical interventions because by taking puberty blockers you are beginning to progress down a path which appears to only have one outcome. One of the things I was trying to get at was there's this quote here. I think this Dame Victoria Sharp said, it is doubtful that a child aged 15 or 14 or 15 could understand and weigh the long-term risks and consequences of administration of the puberty blockers. Now, I read that because in the context of what I was saying before is that one of the things that they, they had to take into account considering consent was the nature of uh, the nature of the of, 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 of the procedures themselves and the, both the risks and the consequences inherent in them as they understood them if there were no risks and the consequences were were, were benign either ways or there were a reversibility and all that then it would that it would seem to me that would affect the the the, the nature of consent the type of consent required but as you say they could the doubtful they could properly weigh the long-term consequences she goes on to say in respect of young persons and this is interesting in respect of young persons aged 16 and over the legal position is that there is a presumption that they have the ability to consent to medical treatment however mm. given the long-term consequences of the clinical interventions at issue in this case and given that the treatment is as yet innovative and experimental we recognize that clinicians may well regard that these cases where the authorization of the course should be sought prior to commencing clinical treatment. Which is kind of saying, you know, when people say, that, you know, should the courts get involved in these things? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? This is, this is the court saying, yes, it's perfectly, we are, it's okay to get us involved. And not only that, maybe you should get us involved a little bit more than you, even than this. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that's actually quite interesting in the report. Like even just... The fact the High Court says that puberty blockers and sex change hormones should not be considered as entirely separate things, but rather, I think the phrase was two stages of one clinical pathway. Right. And they did make an interesting point, and this, this is a quote from it, and it says, The use of puberty blockers is not itself a neutral position process by which time stands still for the child on puberty blockers, whether physically or psychologically. 
Puberty blockers prevent the child going through puberty in the normal biological process. At a minimum, it seems to us that this means that the child is not undergoing the physical and consequential psychological changes which would contribute to the understanding of a person's identity. This may confirm the child's chosen gender identity at the time they began the use of puberty blockers and to that extent confirm their gender dysphoria and increase the likelihood of some children moving on to cross-sex hormones. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the statistical correlation between the use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones supports the case that it is appropriate to view puberty blockers as a stepping stone to cross-sex hormones. And there's tons of stuff like that. I mean, the uh, the statements on how the treatment is also experimental were interesting, particularly for the Tavistock's inability to find evidence to back it up. And the court does note that there are some studies, but they nearly all come from one, I think, Dutch clinic, which gave rise to many of these protocols and hasn't really been studied outside. Yeah, they call it the Dutch protocols. It's worth noting that there are three approaches, apparently, at the moment to this. There's the affirmative approach, the intermediate approach, and the therapeutic approach. The Dutch clinics, from what I was reading actually do not use, don't, or advocate the use of the affirmative approach, even though the, it's the Dutch protocols which are being the ones, which are the ones which are most regularly quoted. Yeah, it, the, the, there, there's a strong sense that the court does regard these, these processes as, at the very, experimental. And that in itself is a red, should be a red flag issue, whether or not, are, are we, experimenting on children. What I found particularly interesting is the court's response to Tavistock saying that, well, as far as we know, puberty blockers are reversible, which started as puberty blockers are reversible, and then over the case of the, the course of the case became, well, as far as we know, they're reversible. When I found out that actually there just hasn't been a lot of study into this, and the court took a dim view to claims of reversibility that couldn't mm-hmm. actually be backed up. But, I mean, the court's line on whether or not it's, um, it was reversible was um, the consequences of this treatment are highly complex and potentially lifelong and life-changing in the most fundamental way imaginable. The treatment goes to the heart of an individual's identity and is thus quite possibly unique as a medical treatment. Right. Well, that's, it seems like a reasonably fair summation. And then, of course, the court, as you said, it was talking about pregnancy and... Um, I mean, a lot of these procedures would leave children permanently sterilized. Yes. Uh, and unable to achieve normal sexual function, which is also something that the judgment uh, touches on. And it makes the point that a 10-year-old can be told all of these things. Can we legitimately expect a 10-year-old to be able to conceptualize what sterilizing themselves means? And then the court goes into the, the basic point of, whether or not children should be allowed to make all of these decisions, because that was Tavistock's point that changing this would infringe on the uh, children's right to bodily autonomy. And the court basically ripped right through that one and said, effectively, if a child is going to be given the option to permanently sterilize themselves at age 10, maybe it is appropriate for the court and adults to perhaps have the say on that. It's also worth, I mean, remember, I, I, it used to be the case, I think, I believe it still is the case, that it was the practice in most 
in most jurisdictions that gynecologists, for example, will not will not uh, will not perform complete hysterectomies on healthy women under the age of twenty five because of the the consequences. Even if somebody says, "Listen, I I'm not interested. I don't want children. I have my reasons for this. Whatever the reasons are, that." There's a there's a practice if if the women are healthy and there is there are no indications of dangers of other pathologies that they will say no you we you we want you to wait to be, before you make this radical decision now whether or not you agree with that it seems to me if you're taking that position in the in in, in on that procedure it's it's rather hard to square that with a ten year old child being asked to make a decision which may well impair fundamentally for whatever about their capacity to have children, how can a 10 year old child understand what it means that they will never develop full sexual function? I, I, I don't, I, that seems to me incredibly abstruse for a 10 year old. So Tavistock had in their defence put forward some testimonials from people who'd undergone uh, puberty blockers or cross sex hormones mm-hmm. and were very positive about it. I don't know if you read those testimonials, but I did, Michael. And one thing I will absolutely note in them is is very front and center is when they are discussing um, sexuality, so many of them talk about how they didn't care if they had no sexual function because they were disgusted by the idea of sex. Yeah. I'm sorry, sort of these, these are people who were 10 or 12. And I've... That... That just doesn't seem like a good combination. That doesn't seem like a healthy combination. You would have thought that if there is, if if a person presents with that, that that's the fr- before you you get into giving them hormones or or certainly any kind of permanent surgery, you might consider looking at a psychotherapeutic approach to resolving that issue, and then seeing. I mean, that's the point a number of endocrinologists have made that there are other things you should do first. It would seem that. And then, if the if if the if the gender, whatever the gender confusion, the gender dysphoria, whatever has not resolved it, then you can move on to address that. But when you have somebody presenting with issues around, say, feelings of disgust about sex or sexuality, feelings of disgust about their their body or their sexual organs, presenting with with eating disorders, presenting with uh, severe anxiety disorders that these questions might be addressed not in parallel or at least in parallel or, or even before to see what effects they have. We're talking about a lifelong commitment. I mean, that's something that uh, I'm sure I knew, but I, I had to be, I have to keep reminding myself that say, for example, you transition uh, uh, and from uh, female to male, then you have to take, I think it's every three weeks, you have to take testosterone. You have to take testosterone. I mean, if you go the other way, there's numerous unpleasantness with the, um, what the court refers to as the construction of the neo-vagina, which is just a very interesting phrase. But the, the body thinks that it has a wound and effectively you have to take steps to keep it open through forced insertions taking place fairly regularly. Yeah, well, there are certain issues that are both around vaginoplasty and, and, and phalloplasty. There are issues there. There are health issues that come along with taking uh, ho- hormones that your cells, because the, uh, 
the DNA of your cells r- remains the same. Your your cells at a cellular level, you remain what your your what your you your assigned gender at birth was, and it's not necessarily clear that your cells will, will that your male cells will react in the kind of way that you want them to. It's that you certain that everybody, all your body says, okay, well now I'm a woman and will react as a woman to high levels of estrogen. So we know, for example, from the studies, it seems to be the case that uh, women have take high levels of testosterone have 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 very much elevated risk of coronary heart disease or heart attack. Men who have who are taking estrogen of higher levels, uh, elevated level risk of clotting and of of stroke and at levels which were much higher for example i think we're talking about this before that when when it was discovered the the, the link was discovered between the uh, oral contraceptive pill the hormonal based the uh, estrogen based i think it's estrogen based hormone uh, or oral contraceptive pill and higher rates of stroke in women that there was in, in many jurisdictions there was a hiatus on its prescription and then they looked again at the formulation of of, of the drug and and the periods of time that women should be could be safely taking these, and yet those the, the, the levels of risk associated the increased level of risk were much lower than the increased levels of risk that we see with a lifetime of taking these drugs. So that at least would suggest that we need to be careful. This is not to say that you, you that uh, uh, that you you deny people at some stage the right, certainly adult people, to make that choice. But if you're going to make an informed choice, even as an adult, you're going. To, informed means precisely that. Informed. I mean, there was there were a couple of, of other interesting things that, that came up. I, I touch on briefly. One was that um, when the Tavistock was talking about the rever- the low impact of puberty blockers, the research they were using was on what's called precocious puberty which is where a child will get, uh, puberty will happen at a very early age. So it could be, you know, eight, could be nine. Could yeah. Be, I think even earlier in some cases. But as the court kind of rightfully pointed out, that's not the same thing. Because here, there you're delaying an early onset puberty to when it would normally happen. And here you're delaying it from when it would normally happen. And those mm-hmm. just aren't the same thing. And Tavistock didn't really seem to have any point on it. The other one that was interesting is that we know from the literature that, um, so in about 2008, 2010, the Tavistock's patients were about 50-50 male-female. They're now about 75% women. And we know from the international literature mm-hmm. that a lot of those women are going to have what are called ASDs or autistic uh, spectrum disorders. And the course asked Tavistock about this because there's international literature on it and people have been arguing that maybe this would indicate that these people have other issues and Tavistock had to say we don't have that information which the court again says is surprising but one I thought was particularly I think the court may have found this one particularly surprising Michael was that they asked how many people how many young people are sent to Tavistock and recommended for puberty blockers but are not given them because they are not ruled to be mentally competent. Right. They do not understand what is being put forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tavistock said they had no statistics on that. And the court right. said, well, we gained the strong impression that it is extremely unusual for 
Tavistock to refuse to give puberty blockers on the ground that the young person was not competent to give consent. And remember, these people are dealing with children as young as 10. So they had to show that these people could understand what was being put to them. And according to the court, they have no statistics on how often a 10-year-old could have, well, this may permanently sterilise you, explained to them, and just not get it to the extent Tavistock was comfortable with. I think it's worth noting in passing at least that uh, that large increase in, in female uh, in females presenting with this who who uh, with ASD that this is a manifestation generally speak this is usually associated with the manifestation of what is sometimes called sudden onset gender dysphoria. So these are children who up to the beginning of pu- around so the area of beginning of puberty and puberty who would have up to that point not displayed any discomfort with their gender. They wouldn't have been and hadn't displayed any typical non-gender conforming behaviours. When they hit puberty, uh, this sudden uh, gender dysphoria occurs. And there are some doctors who think that there may be elements of social contagion involved in this. There may be other... uh, other psychological issues at work. There may be other issues. Shall we say there are other other comor? I don't want to say comorbidities because that would imply that we're talking about a disease here. But that there are other issues here that need to be investigated and addressed along with this, because this is at least it seems like this is a new phenomenon, and therefore a a, a poorly understood one. And before we advance with again with procedures and treatments, which may ha- will will have long term and drastic effects on both the the psychological and physical lives of the individuals involved, that we need to understand this better, rather than just take a a one-size-fits-all approach. But it was, um, I thought it was quite a a strong judgment. I think the reasoning of the judges is actually quite reasoned. I mean, there is potential here for this to impact on a lot of other areas, where children may... um, may have to show consent for certain procedures. But I think this procedure was somewhat apart from everything else because, as the um, as the court itself pointed out, you're asking children to do something that they may not be able to contextualise in a way that actually indicates understanding. Because what 10-year-old can guess what it will mean to be sterilised in their 20s? Yes. Or to be unable to sexually function in their 20s. But also, it's experimental medicine and there's no evidence base as to the efficiency of it. So it's not even that the Tavistock was able to stand up and say, okay, yes, whatever about that, but it works. Here are the improved uh, life results of people who undergo it. Tavistock couldn't show it was actually making anything better. And I think had they been able to do so, this would have been a very different debate. But effectively, they had to stand in front of a court and say, yes, maybe don't, children don't understand, and yes, the results may be terrible, and yes, this appears to be a clinical path, and yes, all of these things, and yes, we can't prove that it actually works. So I don't think they came out of this one terribly well. I thought it's worth also maybe quoting uh, the second claimant, who is known only as Mrs. A, who was the mother of a 15-year-old girl, this is the BBC reporting, a 15-year-old girl with autism, who is awaiting treatment at the clinic. And I think what she says is important. She said, my fear is... It's not that she transitions, it's that she gets it wrong. And I think that has to be the, the, 
the fear of parents and the fear of people who would who, who, who care for these children it's not that uh, they are in some sense metaphysically or morally opposed to the possibility of, of people transitioning and living in a different gender but rather that they need to really be fully to fully understand it and all of the various issues that may be contributing to their discomfort with their assigned gender may be that if at all possible resolved before a decision is made because well you've seen gary as i'm sure as i uh an increasing number constantly increasing number of stories in social media and in youtube and elsewhere uh about people who are detransitioning or desisting as they sometimes say and that's a very difficult very difficult road to take also yeah particularly depending on, on how far you've gone down i mean depending on the hormones you're using things like your bone structure can change uh, you can be left with pretty irreversible things and if you've gone down some of the surgical routes like mastectomies or uh, vino, uh, vaginoplasties stuff like mm-hmm. that yes that's not stuff you're going to easily walk away from you're never going to get back to the way you would have been it simply no. is not possible and I, I remember we were talking about this before this case happened and we were I'm not sure if it was you or myself who said that what we would expect to see is in 15 years, uh, people who had detransitioned on talk shows basically looking at the public and say, I ended up permanently sterilized and you caused this. Yeah. And uh, that's yeah, going to be I, a nasty moment. Yeah, we were, we, we were talking this before and saying, uh, and not, not facetiously, that 15 years time and maybe before that indeed at this stage, we'll be looking at a hell of a lot of lawsuits. Because people were becoming said, I was a child. I was in obviously in obvious psychological distress. I was in no way competent to give proper informed consent to this procedure, and nobody stopped me. People who there were no adults in the room. There were professionals there whose job it is to protect me, and you didn't protect me. I mean, I I will say I found the Tavistock Clinic's argument that. Um changing anything on consent on this could interfere with the with the child's rights and the child's ability to consent because you're sort of going you're asking 10 year olds to do something that will permanently sterilize them and then saying well they made their choice you know we gave them a couple of pamphlets and we let them talk to someone they knew what they were doing and i just don't believe that i don't believe most 10 year olds are capable of understanding what this is going to mean for them. But also, if a child goes into hospital for an appendectomy, do you ask the child for consent or do you ask the parents for consent? A 10-year-old. Does a 10-year-old have to give consent for surgery? Actually, there was an interesting case in the judgment they mentioned, which is where a child can be found to not be competent to make a decision, and it relates to a child who grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household, refusing um, a blood transfusion and being forced to have one, and the court basically saying that she wasn't competent to uh, kill herself. But I, I just, this, this Tavistock thing of just, well, we you know, they say this is what we want, so therefore we have to do it, and it's not our place to decide whether or not it's a good or bad thing, I find bizarre. It just doesn't seem like a serious argument, because children would make many decisions that would be immensely harmful to them in the moment 
it's not the job of adults to basically say, here's everything you need to do that to a degree you never imagined possible. And in fact, in every other situation, it seems rather than this one, it would be regarded as an absolute dereliction of your duty, either as a parent or as a doctor, to do if to take that position. And again, for all we hear about, you know, this is necessary to, you know, there's a massive rate of trans of uh, trans children committing suicide and self harming, and this is needed to stop that. The fact that they had, they were unable to provide any compelling evidence that it actually works doesn't bode well for that argument. Yeah, uh, because you have been up to now dealing with fairly small populations, it's been very difficult to do any kind of rigorous large-scale study on this. A number of years ago, if anybody's interested, they should be able to find it on Google. I do remember The Guardian wrote an article which was based, basically it was a meta-analysis of all of the studies that were available at the time on the efficacy of uh, full hormonal and surgical transitioning. And as regards suicidality, I believe the analysis said that if there was a very, very marginal difference where those who transitioned were very slightly, had very slightly higher levels of suicidality than those who didn't have or those who hadn't fully transitioned. Um, but as it stands, there is it doesn't seem to be any strong evidence that if you're talking about the other problems that might be associated with non-transitioning, as you say, self-harming, suicidality, suicidalization, that kind of thing, that there doesn't appear to be any strong evidence at the moment suggesting that the this kind of full transitioning, chemical and, and, and uh, ultimately surgical transitioning, actually addresses those problems. Did, have you ever heard the, the phrase blue and orange morality, Michael? I have not. It, it refers to, uh, to when you encounter a system of morality that's just entirely different to the one that you operate on. So instead of right and wrong, it could just be as easily blue and orange. That What they determine to be right and wrong just does not mesh with your moral understanding. And it just doesn't make sense to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I read this and I read about, we've no evidence for this to work. It can sterilize children. It is largely irreversible, depending on what way they go. It has unknown impacts on their body. Uh, has a numerous possible negative impacts overall. And then, okay, well, we'll do it anyway because it might help and the children have consented to it. And we wouldn't yeah. want to stand in the way of children doing what they want. That is not a position I find morally... I don't really understand it. I don't understand the moral values behind it. I mean, how high do you have to value consent in all cases before that becomes something where you look at that and go, that is morally not just justifiable, but right. And it's rare that I run into something where I legitimately have to go, I actually don't understand how you're doing this. I had a conversation once with a psychiatrist who was involved in assessing people uh, for whether or not they should progress to uh, transition. And I asked him what his, his opinions regarding the efficacy or otherwise of the... And he said he was, very, he was rather sceptical about the process. And I said, well, then ethically, I mean, it, is, it was... For example, it was always a position in surgery that you would not perform a surgery on health, healthy tissue, right? 
that that was an unethical thing to do. So, for example, uh, carrying out a double mastectomy on on healthy breast tissue be, as part of this process would historically have been regarded as an unethical surgical procedure. How do you ethically square that? Your your scepticism and the traditional ideas about uh, about medicine first do no harm and all that with your 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 involvement in this process. And he said, he's very honest. He said, listen. We're dealing with people who present to us in deep psychic pain. We have nothing to offer them. When we're, he was talking about adults. I should point out this to my point. We have we have essentially nothing to offer them. We don't none of the none of the psychopharmacies that we psychopharmaceuticals we have seem to help terribly with this particular problem. No therapies talk therapies don't seem to work this is something that they desperately want for some of the people who take this it will be successful for some of them it will change their lives and they will become happier more successful more content people for others it may not but for there are going to be people who will transition and for whom it has a, a very positive outcome but that's an adult and that's somebody who's reached the end of the line, shall we say, with all of the various interventions, therapies, drugs that might have been prescribed or help that might have been given. And therefore, I can see that, you know, if you're there, even if you're skeptical about it, you say, well, you know, I want to try and do something for this person. And this is, they desperately want it. They're an adult person. Okay, fine. Unless there were some... He would say, like there were certain, there would be situations where there were psychological issues that were that just would they would say no. There's an obvious psychological issue. You're not presenting genu as a genuine transgender person, but rather there are issues that are masking your understanding of your your true condition. But we're not. We're talking about children, and we're talking about children as you say, as young as ten and eleven, and the extent to which they can understand where they are or their sense of their future. And the consequences and the the experimental nature of this, the the lack of clarity about what it will achieve, it seems. You see, you say it's about it's a worship of consent. Is it really about consent, or is consent something that they're using to cover a different motivation? And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying bad faith, but rather a different. I don't know, philosophical or ideological disposition that's driving this. An under, a different understanding of the nature of gender and sex uh, as social constructions and, and the idea of human beings as being malleable. And if we just give them the opportunity to go in a different direction in the same way as if you get a young tree at the right age, you can train it to grow in a different direction. Maybe they have a different understanding of, of human nature to you and me. But I, I, I just what I'm saying is, I suppose, in the long run, is it seems to be that consent is not consent does not explain this. This this as an adherence to the idea of consent does not explain this. We do not allow ten year old children on the basis that they are cons they, they have a right to autonomy and a, and and a desire to consent to certain things. We just don't allow them to do that because of that. It's not it's. It that doesn't seem to me to be an argument that stands up at all. No, again, if there was some evidence base you could point to, that would be one thing. But as it is, it seems roughly like going, well, yes, I gave the child a bottle of whiskey because it said it wanted it. 
I assume this will improve outcomes. But even, Gary, the, the, my, there's my point. As regards consent, it's, that would be still irrelevant. It wouldn't be irrelevant regarding the ethics of, the, of doctors pursuing that particular line of treatment. But the, the child would still be incapable of giving informed consent, even if it was a good procedure. The child can't consent. Until Tavistock appeals this and has it overturned at the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, and we shall see. Maybe that will happen. Although... And I'll include a link to the full judgment in this podcast. It's well worth reading. Um, it's about 40 pages long, which, and it's a legal document, so it's, it's relatively easy to, uh, to read. British legal documents, a lot of them tend towards plain English uh, expressions, and they tend to actually be pretty, pretty easy to read, pretty fun. Although that may say more about me than about what is actually fun. But uh, you wanted to talk about the Sinn Féin TD, Michael. Well, wanted to talk. No, it's just, it's a, it's not a big story. We won't take, spend long on it. But um, I, I imagine that our listeners are probably aware of some comments that were made uh, by the Sinn Féin TD um I want to say Brian Stanley, am I right? It's Brian Stanley, yeah, is a Sinn Féin TD. In Leash, is it? And uh, he made a comment which went around the world on Twitter, and which I had here, and I have lost. So what he said was, Kilmichael, 1920, and Narrowwater, 1979, the two IRA operations that taught the elite of the British Army and the establishment the cost of occupying Ireland, pity yeah. for everyone that they were such slow learners. Now, this, I don't suppose to any, anybody's great surprise, provoked a, a huge flurry of reaction. I thought it was, as a comment, it was, at the very least, you could say it was crass, um, ill-judged, uh, in bad taste, all of that. But the thing that I find, in, I'm just, I'm just wondering, Gary, and see what, what you think. I don't know, Gary, but it just seems to me that there's a belief, certainly in Fine Gael, and I think in Fianna Fáil, and maybe in other parties as well, that if we can keep reminding people of the connection between Sinn Féin and the IRA, between Sinn Féin, the IRA, and historical, uh, the armed struggle, the physical force tradition, particularly the trouble of 1969 up to the Good Friday Agreement, that people are going to are going to wake up and go, oh my God, Sinn Féin are, that, are those people that were involved in the IRA and they did uh, the IRA did all these terrible things. And I absolutely do believe the IRA did very, very terrible things. And I think that the attitude of many people in Sinn Féin is more than reprehensible. I think there's speaking out of both sides of their mouth at once. And I think there's deep hypocrisy and all that. But listen, hypocrisy is is not a unique characteristic of Sinn Féin, but very ambivalent about uh, some horrific things that went on, all of that. I not I'm quibble with that. But there's a belief that if we can just get people, voters to remember that, then they will suddenly throw up their hands, clutch their pearls and say, oh, I can't vote for them anymore. They're deeply disreputable, horrible people. And I, and while I think that Stanley was absolute gobshite to say what he said, and you know, in another world and in another country, it's, it might well be a reason why you should have to resign the whip or have the whip taken off you and be cast out into the Purda and the outer darkness. I am I'm sceptical about the efficacy of this as 
a political strategy. I mean, this this is this is not just now. I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. Ever since Sinn Fein started to become a a real presence on the on the scoreboard in the Republic, I would say political parties and the media have pretty consistently reminded the people of where the Sinn Féin came from. I think the Irish people know where they came from. And I don't I don't get any great sense that they're going to wake up one day and discover this and, and, and they're going to leave them in droves. I think they're missing the point a bit about the attraction of Sinn Féin. I just find it interesting that he picked Narrow Water particularly because I'm not... Narrow Water or the Warren Point ambush was a very well executed... Uh, attack by the IRA involving two explosive devices. Now, Mm -hmm. why it is questionable to bring that one up is that when the second explosive device was detonated, it was when a helicopter carrying wounded was taking off, and I believe it was manually detonated. Uh, So there is an argument there that if they were deliberately targeting wounded soldiers trying to retreat, that might constitute a war crime. But if you're working on the premise that this was, in fact, a war... Which is the IRA's premise. Which is the IRA's premise, yes. Happy to meet them on that. If it is a war, then you know their usage of coerced suicide bombers may have also been slightly objectionable. It was also a curious choice, well, for also the reason that I think many people will remember that, that the day Warren Point occurred was also the day that uh, Mountbatten was murdered. And particularly in the... I, in the context at the moment, that a lot of people are watching, I think, is what they call The Queen on Netflix? The Crown. The Crown, that's it. And this incident is shown on it. If nothing, because it's a reminder that the IRA on the same day went, put explosives on a boat where they killed an old man who had been uh, in the Navy. They killed his grandson. They killed a young boy from Sligo who happened to have a summer job working on the boat with the Mountbatten's. Yeah, well, that was a savage act of heroism, indeed. His daughter was on the boat. Yeah. His daughter's uh, children were on the boat. There were a number of people on the boat who had no involvement with British military affairs at all. How can you blow up children and be and think that that's something that we should remember with pride? I, I listen. I, well, let's, I'm not. I'm not going to get into the issues regarding the, you know, the armed struggle and the IRA, etc. I mean, but I just think it's curious that to accuse that. I think it seems to me inevitably if you bring up Warren Point, people will also remember uh, Mountbatten. But to go back to my, I, 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 the rise of Sinn Fein, as much as anything else, isn't about Sinn Fein. Oh, to an extent, it is about their efficiency as an organisation and all of that and their messaging. Surely, it's. It's about the failure of the other political parties in, in the country. And maybe and there, I think there's an unwillingness, certainly in Fianna Fáil, to recognise that. That it's... Fianna Fáil have left a gap the size of Mead and, and invited Sinn Féin in. And who precisely are the voters that are going to be... If Fine Gael are doing this, I don't, are they doing it maybe just because they don't like Sinn Féin, they want high voters and they don't care where the voters are? Normally, political parties, when they do this, it's because they want to attract votes. I am unconvinced there are that many people who are currently voting for Sinn Féin who will see this kind of thing go on, be horrified and say, well, actually, I'm going to vote for Sinn- for Fine Gael instead. I think there would be a pretty aggressive age break 
in how people respond to this. I think people over a certain age, perhaps with more kind of experience of the troubles and the IRA's behavior during it and in the period leading up to it, will have a very different reaction than people who are very young. I think for the most part, this is like with Donald Trump. Like I know lots of people who supported Donald Trump who don't like Donald Trump. They don't like yeah. lots about him. Yeah. But they liked particularly policies he had or they thought he could turn things around. And they those were the reasons that they voted for him. So when people came out and said Donald Trump is a racist, it wasn't so much that they disagreed with them. It just didn't matter. And also, I think the Trump analogy is useful then because another thing we know, particularly younger voters, was they saw him as a disruptor. And I think a lot of voters here see Sinn Féin as a disruptor. So I think, I mean, you may have... You may have older voters who are swayed by this, but oh, I know lots of older voters who would never vote for Sinn Féin anyway. Yeah, but exactly. And I think even if you're talking older voters, you're talking, there are two discrete populations there. There are older voters who were horrified and disgusted by everything that went on during the IRA campaign. Then there are older voters who feel kind of ambivalent about it. Mm. Who didn't, who go on, shall we say, there will be, let's talk again in the language of before, a spectrum, Gary. They live on a spectrum from people who actually had pretty well no problem with it to people who had terrible problems with stuff like, say, the Warrington bombing uh, or attacks on civilians in the United Kingdom or in the, even the North, but maybe, but felt more ambivalent about attacks on members of the security forces and think, well, you know, they're occupying Ireland and they shouldn't be there and they're soldiers and this is part of whatever. But there will be a degree of ambivalence about whether or not this is a very, very bad thing. So I think there's a, there's a court of, of older voters as well who who are not necessarily turned off. And I think some of those, a small, there, there weren't that many of them, but are the historic old, old Sinn Féin vote in the South. But younger voters are a bit like the voters. I suppose they're like, you know, people on the right are constantly horrified and shocked these days, it seems, well, mid just horrified and shocked full stop maybe, but by the fact that so many young people seem to support not just social democracy, but socialism, radical socialism, right up to Marxism and communism. But they forget, the wall came down in 1989. People like me, people my age and my generation and older, we grew up with this awareness of this world which was divided into two things and two different systems. And in our opinion, the complete failure of the other system. But 1989, you know, for, it's a long time ago now for a lot of people. A lot of people have no memory of that reality. And these ideas recur, they come back, and they have no connection with that. And I think Sinn Féin, the same way, they're younger voters, they don't have a sa the same visceral emotional connection with the memory of, of, of the troubles that other voters do. I think that's an important point. There's a difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing something in that more visceral emotional sense of it yes and it's difficult to have that for events that you weren't alive for in many cases or that are incredibly distant memories because you were so young but just more on the general point michael i know we've we've talked about about the rise of far-right groups in europe and how they were allowed to rise because they were willing to talk about issues that were seen as outside the purview of mainstream political parties and that pushed yeah. people towards these parties yeah. because yeah. they offered or said they offered a solution to problems that people thought were serious but they were not allowed to discuss and politicians would not engage with and in many ways Irish politicians I know many Irish politicians and many of them are good people on an individual basis but as a collective Irish politics is not known for its competency 
its ability to solve problems, and since Hahi left office, its vision. So, considering that, there would seem to be ample space for Parity to grow, and even if people didn't like certain aspects of its history, as those events go further and further away, if the party is able to go, we will solve those problems, mm. and they've never been in power in the South, so it's very easy for them to be able to do that, it's actually a great advantage to them, I think, in many ways, that they are outside the political system to some extent, or have been until recently, or until the next election. They're untainted, in a sense, by, by the, the, the failure and the corruption yeah, of the they, past. they can always say it is because of these people that the country yeah. is like this. And because they've never been in power, you can't say, well, like, you had these three years, and you didn't do it. But I think the, the, the issue here is that Irish politics is largely incapable of dealing with issues. I mean... The health service, housing, I don't think anyone has any great expectation that anything politicians do will improve these things. No, and when, one of the most... Dis- I remember a conversation we had some time ago when we, 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 we first met, and, I, and we're talking about the things that were upsetting about Irish politics, and I said something to you, which you at the time found... I don't know, you were sceptical about it, which was a little bit shocking. I said it was that there were a hell of a lot of people in Irish politics, perfectly nice people, who, when they got into government, not only did they not follow up through on policies which they deeply believed in by conviction, but actually formulated and drafted and enacted laws which they actually believed not only would not work, but would make things worse. And if you have politicians doing that all the time, I mean, if you do that in your life, whatever your profession is, if you're constantly doing things which are actually run against your inner convictions, your inner ethos, that's corrosive and that's not going to lead to positive outcomes. And I, this happens. I, there are politicians in the doll today who, if you ask them, if you put three, four pints into them, ask them their opinion on, for example, the minimum wage, rent control, um, centralised planning of housing, uh, the national, uh, having a national health service, everything free at the point, free the point of use and whatever. They would say, absolutely not, doesn't work, can't work, won't work, uh, it's it's immoral for this reason and that reason, this kind of tax is wrong, that kind of tax is wrong. But the same politicians in government have behaved in the opposite way. And I've heard a lot of people giving out recently about Thatcher because Thatcher, again, has apparently is in the crown and her betrayal has caused a certain amount of comment again. And people are... Conviction is a tricky thing, Gary, being convicted of something is not always a good thing. Conviction and passion can very often be very bad things if you're convicted and passionate about wicked things. But if you actually have deep feelings and deep beliefs and then you, you live in a way which is the opposite of them, I don't know how you can't avoid being corrupted. And how you go, everything ultimately then just becomes procedure. And how many policies in Ireland are, really come from, if, if outside of are on the old-fashioned mainstream parties, how many come from within a philosophical tradition within those parties, and how many come from either the civil service or from lobby groups that are actually NGOs funded by the taxpayer? I mean, on, on housing, I don't think Sinn Féin's policies will work. No. I, I think they will be disastrous. And I think when you look at the local level, that the actions of their people at local levels are, if anything perpetuating homelessness. Not in all cases. I know some Sinn Féin reps at the local level who are exceptionally good, but the drive to go against all new bills is absolutely, absolutely increasing levels of homelessness 
and the difficulties people have in getting houses. But at the same time, like, at least Sinn Féin have a plan. And not just a plan they wrote on a napkin. There is a book. Yeah. You can read it. You can disagree with it. I don't think it's terribly solid. But other people can come to other views. And at least there's fucking something. As opposed to, well, we wrote a manifesto and it's kind of serious. But we'll forget it in a short while. I don't know what any of the Finnefallers believe is the way to solve this problem. I no, have no true. idea what they actually not want to true. do. No. They say, like they say, oh, we want to do these things, and but I don't actually know what that means. What what do no. they actually believe should be done? And so Sinn Fein, I I I don't have the weird hatred of Sinn Fein and the disgust that I know a fair amount of people in Irish politics have for them, and certain people of the Irish public, because they are a political party. They offer things that may be solutions. I don't think they could implement many of them, but I can see why people are attracted to them. And also, I think there is a little bit of, you know, wanting you know, ha- wanting your cake and, and eating it at the same time, in that we were told, for years, Sinn Féin has to engage with the democratic process. Yes. Has to engage with the democratic process. And then Sinn Féin engages with the democratic process. And we're told, well, we can't engage with them because they're tainted. And you mm. sort of go, well, you were telling them to do this. And they did it. What do you want from them? Like People vote for them. They're a political party. You can't just cut them out entirely. And frankly, it might be better strategically to bring them in at some point, just so that they have to, they, they lose the ability to say, you know, if we got in, we just sort the country right out. Yeah, and eventually that will happen. And either they will go full Venezuela, and it'll be a nightmare. My suspicion is that they will morph fairly quickly into some kind of left leftish social democ- social democratic party. I mean I I don't know because for years Sinn Fein before the water protests is very different. And I kind of knew that Sinn Fein. Not not I was never involved with the party but I knew people in it and I kind of got a sense of what they were like. But since the water protests the new people who've come in have been very different to the old Sinn Fein. And they seem to be on the ascendancy. So I'm not sure what those people are actually like. But I think you're right that the old Sinn Féin was way more practical than people give it any credit for being at its core. I always go back to the the exit polls from the last election. And now I know that voters necessar- will not necessarily uh, reflect the values and mores of the leaders of the party. In fact, when you map them, it seems that the, the, there's a bigger gap between Sinn Féin voters and Sinn Féin leadership than there is between any other party in the country. But I think that it, that that either resolves itself by the leadership moving back towards the voters or the voters leaving and going somewhere else, which resolves the problem of Sinn Féin in power. But if you remember, to me, amongst all of the various bits and pieces, remember the, the question on taxation. The exit poll asked voters... If you're, if there was extra money in the kitty, would you prefer that money be spent on improving public services or to be spent on a tax cut? The party who's, which gave the largest percentage of its voters saying it should be given as a tax cut was Sinn Féin. Bigger than Fine Gael. Now that is not what most people off the top of their head would have predicted for a Sinn Féin voter. I don't believe that Sinn Féin voters... No, I think you're right. There's a gap between... And particularly post-water protest, an ideal, there's an ideological element which is coming to Sinn Féin, which wasn't there before. But we'll see. I think there are tensions within Sinn Féin, and the bigger it gets, the more those tensions will, will, will arise. I think there are d- differences between Sinn Féin in Dublin and Sinn Féin, say, 
historical centres of Sinn Féin, like in Wexford or uh, Donegal or uh, or Kerry. And those tensions will have to be resolved. As Marx would say, those contradictions will have to sort themselves out. We shall see if and when. And one of these days, we shall see, because one of these days, and it may be sooner than any of us thought, Sinn Féin are going to be in government. Well, I mean, that's not inevitable. No, nothing nothing is inevitable, Gary. This is true. It, it does look very likely, though. And I'm, uh, I'm actually quite interested to see what they're like in government, because as, as I said, like, I think there is far more of a practicality there towards government amongst a lot of the Sinn Féin guys that I've met than people expect. And so I don't think it's going to be this radically left-wing thing. I think it'll be left-wing, but not. It's not going to go Venezuela. I think if what you need to remember, the parallel I think you need to remember is we had the Workers' Party. We Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, which then became the Workers' Party. The Workers' Party became the Democratic Left. The left, Democratic Left had a, a merger which effectively took over the Labour Party. And by 1994, they were in government in the Rainbow Coalition. And do you know what, Gary? The government, 1994 to 1997, led by John Bruton, will not go down in Irish history as the, as, as the, uh, the October Revolution of Irish politics. Rory Quinn was Minister for Finance. And my memory of it is everybody going around, gosh, Rory Quinn, very good Minister for Finance, isn't he? Didn't expect that from Rory Quinn. Mao Tse Quinn, as they used to call him, or Ho Chi Quinn. Ho Chi Quinn, I think. Ho Chi Quinn was his, his moniker, I think, as a student politician. But when he, by the time they had evolved to where they were in 1994, and they were in government, they behaved like political parties now do. I'm, I am confident, Gary, they will disappoint us, but in exactly the same way as every other party will disappoint us. They shall not excite us overly. But maybe they will. Maybe they'll come for us. Maybe we shall be rousted out of our beds and brought to re-education camps in the Curra. I know, Michael, occasionally when people like Sinn Féin is ruled by the Army Council, I'm like, maybe that's what this country needs. <laughs> a council of people who know, you know, sometimes you've just got to shoot someone. Sometimes you've just got to tell people, no, you're building housing there, and we don't really care what you think about it. You want a group of people who are used to saying, okay, this is the objective, this is where we are, and this is how we're going to do it, and we're just going to do it. Now, you be a good soldier and you implement. Yeah. I can actually see that being very effective. Anyway, I suppose uh, on that note, today is still Wednesday. So that means that today after tomorrow will still be Friday. And I imagine that's the day we shall try and return with more pithy insights on the nature of the decline and fall of humanity. But until then, I would say, mind yourselves. Don't go mad in phase level three. Remember, stay alive for Christmas. Is that is that why people listen to the show? To hear of the decline and fall of human civilization? I just assume people listened to us while they were jogging or something. Well, yeah, but if you can jog and listen to the end of humanity, why not do both? You can jog and ponder the void at once. Yeah. What a time. What a, what a like, species man is. Kierkegaard was mad and jogging. Anyway, mind yourselves and goodbye. All the best.